This is Dr. Shannon M. Clark with a Doctor Delivers podcast. Today, I am discussing IVF with pre-implantation genetic screening with reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, Dr. Jenny Hirschfeld-Citron. Have a listen. Okay, here we are. We are live. Uh, I am Dr. Shannon Clark with uh, Babies After 35. And I'm introducing here Dr. Gen- Dr. Uh, Jenny Hirschfeld. She's with Fertility Centers of Illinois. And we're going to talk today about IVF with pre-implantation genetic testing. First, I want to say, how are you doing today? I know it's beautiful Good. weather. Yeah, yes, beautiful weather. Great to be here, though. Yeah, and I really want to thank you for joining me. Um, this is a great topic. I get a lot of questions about it all the time. So um, uh, whoever's listening, you'll see uh, at the bottom will be some banners that are populating with questions that I have for her. And then I'll also be able to look at comments to see if anybody asks comments throughout the the broadcast. So here we go. All right. Okay, so Dr. Hirschfeld, I I call it the alphabet soup, actually, and you refer to it the same way. Uh, There's so many different acronyms, PGT, PGD, PGS, P, whatever. What can you tell us what each one of those means? Yes, absolutely. I agree. It is like alphabet soup and mm-hmm. the terms change to make it easier. And I think it made it harder. Yeah. But at one point there was only PGS, which is pre-implantation genetic screening and PGD, which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And then people thought that was confusing. So we moved to this realm of PGT. So pre-implantation genetic testing dash A means aneuploidy. So that was the old PGS. That's when we're screening chromosomes. So not the level of DNA, but big picture things like chromosomes, which I always think of as like the book chapters that contain all the letters of our DNA. We have chromosome issues. These are things that occur at fertilization. These are things that create Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. These are errors that we see just as a relation to age. PGT-M is now when somebody is screening for a particular disease. So if a Two members of a couple, both are carriers for cystic fibrosis. We're going to target that gene, and we're going to be able to screen exactly embryos to make sure that that gene is not present. The, oh, sorry. Ahead. And then the last would be PGT, what we call SR, which is for structural rearrangement. So again, again, another level of confusion. Mm-hmm. Screening chromosomes, but someone that has a uh, translocation error. And I think of translocations again. We take that book chapter. Um, someone has like a huge Harry Potter book. We have 30 plus chapters. Chapter two and chapter 10 got rearranged. Mm-hmm. That individual has everything. But when egg and sperm combine and these two huge books become one book, mistakes can happen. And so if somebody has this rearrangement, they can have higher rates of miscarriage. And so if we know someone has a rearrangement, we want to screen the embryos for that particular rearrangement or chromosome rearrangement. We call that SR. So PGT is like the overarching umbrella Mm -hmm. and what type of PGT is going to determine based on your reason to do it. The majority of people do what we call PGTA, which is simply we want to screen embryos because an individual is 36 and we want to be able to identify embryos that are chromosomally abnormal. So those are not transferred, allows us to decrease miscarriage rates, allows us to improve pregnancy success per transfer. Okay, so with the PGT uh, S for the screen uh, for the screening for aneuploidy, so that would be an example of what I had done when I went through my IVF because I was forty plus. So they were looking for, uh, and we use the word aneuploidy, which means chromosomal abnormalities uh, like Down syndrome. I had a lot of them. Mine were actually monosomies, 
um, which means instead of having three chromosomes as like Down syndrome or two, which is what we're supposed to have, there was only one for certain things. Um, so that's an example of PGS, the PGT, a PGT with the, uh, what was the second one you said? So PG, ironically, PGT became, or PGS became PGTA. So PGTA, okay, so that's PGTA. People try to make it easier, okay. but they just PGTA made it harder. PGTA, anybody. Then the second one was PGTM. Yep, so if they're for um, screening for one particular disease. An example of that, um, I have a friend whose wife has a genetic disorder that is carried, it's called autosomal dominant, which means that her offspring would have a high risk of having the genetic defects. So they are actually developing the marker through blood exactly. from different family members so they can target their embryos to test for that particular genetic disorder. And then the last one was PGT. SR. So that would that be more as if uh, you had a couple and they were having miscarriages and you found that one the, the, the you know, one of the partners had a trans a translocation or something like that, that you would screen for the embryos. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of sums it up a little bit for me. <laughs> yeah. I think it's still this alphabet soup, but it's the idea is that depending on someone's goal. Um, so this idea you said, like your friend who had an autosomal dominant disease, most of us have no idea what we're carriers for. Right. And this sort of opens up a whole other question of should everyone be screened for what we call carrier testing? Mm -hmm. I personally am an advocate of it. So if you identify your carrier, it's just knowledge, your partner should be screened. You're both carriers of cystic fibrosis. Now your goal to screen embryos is so that you don't pack, pass on that illness. And there are a series of illnesses we can identify and prevent. The majority of people are doing PGT to screen for chromosome errors. Mm -hmm. The most common that we think of that results in a live birth is Down syndrome, but mm -hmm. the majority result in a miscarriage. Right, right. So I always think like the purpose of why you're doing helps us, the letters sort of help us in that way. But I don't think the letters are helpful. It, it, it's yes and no. I, I get it, I'm in the medical yeah. field, I, so I could get it, but I, I understand for someone who's not, that it can be a little murky. But, but you could potentially screen the, the same couple for PGTA, which is for aneuploidy or uh, you know genetic defects like Down syndrome, and if there, what you could also screen if, say, the mom had a autosomal dominant disorder. Absolutely, right. Yeah. So all of that's discussed before the process, just to see you know if there's anything else that, since they are testing embryos, if there's anything else they need to look for while while we're at it. Maybe yeah, exactly, because right. it's you can screen for one thing or four things at the same time. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is power, so knowing what to screen for is why you do, you know, your initial testing with the doctor that you're seeing. Good, good, good. Okay, so let's go to the next question. What is the accuracy? How accurate is it for us to do as women? And I'll put on my just non-doctor hat. How accurate is it, uh, the testing, if I, if I choose to have the, the, these embryos tested? So when we're screening for things like those single gene disorders, it's extraordinarily accurate. Um, it's probably like 98 to 99% accurate. When we're screening for chromosomes, it is not quite as accurate. Most of us would quote somewhere between potentially 95 and 97% accurate that when we tell you the embryo is normal, it's truly normal. The flip of it is I think what creates confusion. When we tell someone that it's an abnormal embryo, when we think about what we're doing, we're biopsying the part of the embryo that becomes the placenta. And I always think of it like a mosaic tile in your bathroom. Yeah. There can be multiple cell lines in the placenta. And in a sense, that's normal for the placenta. So I'm going to back you up there, what you just said, because I, I get asked this all the time. And even I didn't know, as an OBGYN, I didn't understand. Like what, what you're taking a cell, are you taking like a part of the finger? Are you taking a part of the nose? Are you taking a part of the heart? 
So what you're saying is your the cell is coming from what would be the placenta. Future placenta. So that's between, important for people yeah, to know. Yeah, absolutely. But mm -hmm. three to five cells, mm -hmm. um, and we call the outer cell mass. So it's the part of the embryo that's destined to be the placenta for obvious reasons. We don't want to create any damage to, to the, the you know to the embryo itself. And we've learned this through the years because mm -hmm. we used to screen embryos at earlier phases where we really didn't know what cell was destined to become what function. But now that we screen the placenta, we are assuming what we learn in the placenta is exactly what will occur in the embryo. Unfortunately, that's just not the way sort of mother nature designed it. So the placenta, you know, can have multiple cell lines. That's part of its function. Yep. The goal of the placenta is to invade in the lining, to help implant that embryo into your, into your uterine cavity. The difficulty is, you know, medicine is conservative by nature. So if any part of that biopsy is revealed as no abnormal, we're going to call it abnormal. What we have learned as a field is maybe about 10 to 12% of the time we overcall abnormal. Mm -hmm. And so someone has to sit with that, that when I tell you, yep, those embryos are abnormal, 10 to 12% of the time, it could be wrong. We could be overcalling. Mm -hmm. We are doing it for the flip so that we tell you that it's normal. We can be really, really confident. When we tell you it's abnormal, there's a little bit more of an error. And I think that that is just, that's just the honesty of where the testing mm -hmm. is at. You know, the older somebody is, the more value right. it has. And it's not a perfect test. So right. I think and it's I, important to know that. It is important to know that because I, as someone who went through IVF, I ended up having 16 embryos that made it to the testing phase. And out of those 16, only one was genetically normal. And uh, that was due to my age. I was 40 to 42 when this was going on. So we had a reason. Um, but, you know, at 41, 42, I, you know, I had to rely on that because, you know, I, I knew that that was a possibility that were because of my age. Okay, so next question. Who is a candidate for PGT and what, we already talked about this a little bit, what tests could be performed? You kind of went over that, but who, uh, if you had to list, you know, in hierarchy, if there is such a thing, like who gets the most, maybe who gets the most PGT and then, you know, so on. Yeah, so I think like the slam dunk is the woman who has a disorder that she could pass to her child, mm -hmm. a couple that both have copies of a gene that they could pass to their child. This has been identified and learned. We want to prevent the illnesses we know we can prevent. Mm -hmm. I always think this is sickle cell, this is Tay-Sachs, this is cystic fibrosis. These are those types of diseases. And that can be a woman of any age. Any age, right. any age, any background, um, any ethnicity, anything. And so the idea is that we cast a wide net. We screen everyone. We learn who this can be. And those people should be offered it. Mm -hmm. So that's the slam dunk. Then most people feel that when we're going to screen for the chromosome error, so not the genes that we know ahead of time, but the chromosome error that occurs at fertilization when egg and sperm combine, which is why we have to screen at the embryo phase or later, is most beneficial in women probably 38 and older. Mm -hmm. Again, it's often offered to everyone, but many studies say that's where we see the dramatic improvement. So my personal practice is to be pretty, um, I, my recommendation become much stronger 38 and older. Yeah. Someone is younger, they can, but again, it, it's been really well informed. Yes, I want to, because it, to me, to be able to screen at 33, 35, because my Down syndrome before I'm pregnant is incredibly important. I'm going to take on that risk of overcall. I'm comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's where everybody finds themselves. But 38 and older, I think it's, it is pretty clear that we're going to improve your success. We're going to help you get there faster. We're going to minimize loss. And miscarriage, it's not just simply the emotional piece. Yeah. It can be months until someone's able to try again. Um, so I think those are the two main the last is couples, like you had said, someone who has a series of miscarriages, they identify a potential genetic reason, those chromosomes have gotten rearranged, and we want to screen it for that reason. 
Those would kind of be the three main groups that I think mm -hmm. of. Yeah, so I would have fallen, fallen into those group based on my age and I did do genetic testing with all of those. I had went through five cycles of IVF and had them all uh, tested. Um, but then when I finally stopped myself and went to an egg donor, she was 25 and I did not test those embryos. Um, because, you know, she was younger and the chances of them being genetically abnormal are much less than with my own at age 40 to 42. So, um, you know, age does play a factor, uh, barring any Absolutely. other single gene yeah. disorders. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we people have studied this, actually. And when you screen donor, it does not improve your success. Right. Success defined by live birth. And I think that's because we're screening for something rare. Mm -hmm. And probably to some degree, theoretically, there could be some issue the biopsy creates that's beneficial when the likelihood is higher, mm -hmm. but probably not as much when the likelihood is so low. Right. So someone in their 20s, it's probably an unneeded technology. Right, right. Okay, next question. So how is it, you, we talked a little bit that you're testing, so talk about how it used to be done versus how it's done now. Like how long do you let the embryo bake, if you will, before yeah. you actually test? Like what is the actual process? So at one point embryo or an egg was screened. So when it, um, fertilization occurs, um, part of the genetic material gets like shoved out, cut the polar body, and we can see that in an egg. And so that was screened at one point in a mature egg. And then by default, you sort of assume what's still left versus what was shoved out. Yeah. Problematic for many reasons. Then we started biopsying embryos at day three. Day three, there's eight cells that make up the embryo. Your guess is as good as mine, which cell is going to create what part of the embryo. So clearly that was problematic and people looked at it, although we were learning information People think the biopsy was so harmful that it didn't improve success. So we learned which embryos, but we have sort of rendered them not as effective. So okay. it was knowledge without benefit. Um, now we move to a day five embryo. So it's been in an incubator for five days. And it it clearly can, it's amazing. It can, you can clearly see this part of the embryo that's going to be the child, that we call the inner cell mass, and the rest that's going to become the placenta. And you can visually see it. And unfortunately, not every egg that's fertilized becomes an embryo of quality yeah. that you can clearly distinguish. So some embryos get stuck or arrest along the mm -hmm. way. Some embryos become a blast, but the quality isn't good. So the concern is the biopsy, again, exactly. is not going to be effective because that embryo could never survive a future transfer. So we want to screen embryos that someone can use. We want this to be useful, not just, you know, gaining knowledge. Unless someone can actually use that knowledge, it's not helpful. Right. So after fertilization, uh, so basically, I, you know, IVF, um, a part, uh, you know, a couple, the egg joins with the sperm, you wait till day five, you just determine, you know, how many of those embryos actually make it to day five for testing. And then of those that do make it to day five, if they are quality embryos that should be tested. So once you take those sa that sample, how much longer does it take? So you freeze those embryos at day five? Yeah. Yes. So, um, Many groups will give them like a little leeway. So day okay. five, six, seven. So if okay. the embryo looks like it should by day seven after fertilization, okay. it's biopsy. That biopsy is sent to a genetic lab. Mm -hmm. um, and so sort of with like micro manipulator, there's this like tiny thing that holds the embryo and there's mm -hmm. this tiny needle that comes in and like, almost like Pac-Man, like takes those three to five cells. Those cells are sent to a genetics lab. The embryo is frozen. It on average takes seven business days to get that result back. Okay. And then those, you'll know of the embryos that were tested um, about a week later, roughly, which ones were genetically normal. And then you make that second step to to determine when the embryo transfer would occur. Yep. And yep. some, you are, couples learn gender. If that is something that's a priority to someone, that is information that will be learned. Yeah. So, but if you don't want to know the gender, you can tell them that and they just, yep. they'll just tell you whether they're normal or not. All right, good. Yep. Not a Perfect. habit. 
Okay. We talked about this uh, uh, a lot about whether or not it could affect the embryo. So based on what you said about it, you know, waiting longer and ex taking the, uh, the uh, cells from the, what would be the end up becoming the placenta, um, the chances that it's going to actually affect the developing baby is very, very slim. But then I also get the question a lot is, you know, can we just test the egg? And the answer to that is just That's unfortunately egg. no. Yeah. So because most mistakes happen when egg and sperm combine. Right. And so technology to try to like guess that just had really low and they just weren't that reliable. Mm -hmm. So we want to be able to give people accurate info. Right. Mm -hmm. So it has to be at the embryo. All right. And then, you know, along the same lines, you know, we think about couples and, and I don't want to leave anybody out. You know, families are made multiple ways and you could, you Absolutely. know, if you're having a couple with, you know, a, a embryos with a sperm donor or whatever, uh, known partner or not, um, the, this, these testing still applies uh, no matter how, how, yeah. how things happen. How the embryo is created. It doesn't matter yeah. the components of the egg and sperm. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I also get a question also, uh, you know, cause they think that you guys are awesome and can do everything. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, a lot of women ask, well, is there a way I get this probably at least four to five times a week. Is there a way to know, especially women over age 35, that my eggs are genetically normal before I even do anything? Like, is there any test we can do to say the genetics of the eggs I might have in my body are normal? I mean, I wish, yeah, but no, I think yeah. now we just don't, you know, I, I think we, all we have is by age, what we would expect, but there's, I wish, I mean, maybe in 10 years, we will have a tool. Maybe one day, but what can you tell? Like if I was 38 and I was, you know, still not ready to have a family or not in a position to have a family, what testing could you do to tell me my, what my fertility might look like? Yeah. So we can test this idea of reserve. And so ovarian reserve is this idea of gauging how a woman would respond if she did IVF, meaning how many eggs would be able to create. It would tell us um, to some de degree how someone compares to other women their young or their young age. This notion, again, that not every 32-year-old, 38-year-old, 42-year-old are the same. Mm -hmm. um, it does not tell us perf really super well how you would conceive on your own. It tells us better how you would respond to IVF, IVF medication. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is helpful though for the 34 year old, 35 year old, 38 year old who have not yet had a partner is that the reality is our treatments work better the younger we are. Mm -hmm. And so to freeze your eggs at 38, even if you use them at 48, they are still a 38 year old egg. Mm -hmm. And so that is an option that people have. So we cannot tell you if your eggs are genetically normal. Mm -hmm. We do know the age though drives that more than anything else. So if you freeze your eggs at a younger age and you use them at an older age, they will they will have a higher likelihood of success. Yeah, right, right. So let's talk about, since you mentioned it, uh, uh, fertility preservation or uh, freezing your eggs, egg cryopreservation, there's multiple ways, but in layman's terms, basically freezing your eggs. What is the optimal ed, uh, age to freeze your eggs? So, so probably biologically, our ultimate, ultimate age is probably between 28 and 32. Yeah. Socially, I don't know who, many are not ready for that. Mm -hmm. It is a time commitment. It is a financial commitment in most states for most people. Um, but the younger we are, I mean, ideally, we freeze our eggs when they're perfect, mm -hmm. when there's been zero issue to them. Mm -hmm. um, the other negative, and, and there's a chance that you, with one cycle of IVF to freeze yeah. it, you're, you'll get more eggs. Exactly. The younger you are, the more you need have, the less you need. Mm -hmm. So you're 28, you probably need 15. Mm -hmm. When you're 40, maybe you need 40. Mm -hmm. When you're 28, which might mean multiple rounds of yeah, exactly. Yes. When you're 28, that's a one and done. When you're 40, that's like three to four. And I think so, it's a very important point to make because I don't think, uh, you know, women understand that they think they can freeze their eggs at any time, which they can't, 
can potentially, but like you said, freezing your eggs at 28 to 32 is not going to be the same result as freezing your eggs at 38. So yep. we need to make sure people understand that because of two things, the genetic component and the number of eggs you get with one round. Um, you know, if you, and this also a good point along the same lines, you know, you guys base uh, as fertility doctors, how many ideal eggs you have in the bank based on what their age is. Exactly. Right. So uh, that's important to know. And, and uh, you know, there's, I have had several friends in their mid to late-ish thirties who decided to pull the trigger and do uh, freezer eggs. And they were very surprised that they didn't get as many as they thought they would. So, and this is a prime, you know, this explains why that happens. And they uh, thought they would do a, have a one and done, but that's not always the case. Yeah. So we compensate by quality, which is related to age by quantity. We right. get more at older ages because we need more. Right. So the younger you are, the better. The negative is it's a commitment, whether mm -hmm. time, without question, financial. The younger you are, there's also a greater odd you won't need them. So like any insurance policy, whether it's our car or anything else, mm -hmm. um, there is a high likelihood you may theoretically never need these eggs. And so women pursuing egg freezing that I see, usually they're like, I'm okay with it. It has taken a, something off my list. I'm sleeping better. I'm, I'm at terms. It'll provide such a peace of mind. I'm okay if I never need to use them. And that's really where someone should be. Right. Um, because the younger you are, you could meet a partner, you could change your mind, mm -hmm. everything. And I've so known several women who did it in the age range of 20, say 28 to 34 or ish who didn't use them. Yep. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's fine too. So it doesn't Absolutely. mean it's, it is exactly like you said, it's like an insurance policy, like an insurance policy, mm -hmm. or maybe to expand your family. Maybe mm -hmm. someone already always envision a family of four. Right. You start at 38, that's going to be a challenge. Right. I'm a prime example of that. So, yes. Okay. So typical cost for someone, we're, we're going to shift gears back to PGT, okay. genetically testing. Uh, I mean, I know how much uh, we, my center tested them in batches of five, which I never had. Five. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is to test. But um, what is it? How do you guys, what, you know, so what's the average range? So slightly different in Illinois is we are, what's called insurance mandated. Mm. Um, and so what that means is most, well, most individuals who, who are employed within Illinois and have a company of ex-employees has insurance that covers at least a portion of IVF. Mm. And now we're seeing that a portion of the biopsy is also being covered. Wow. So the biopsy has two main costs. The drivers are the physical biopsy, which is probably about 1500 to $2,000. And then another two thousand plus, maybe two to three, is going to be the genetic company cost. Some part of that in most of our patients who have insurance is being covered. Okay. Each genetic company has slightly different. So some will decrease the cost if you have like less than four right. and then four and greater be the same cost. Um, what we're lucky enough is that that is an addition. So we're talking about somewhere about four to five plus thousand dollars for just the testing of the embryos. That is not including IVF medications, right, right. The IVF retrieval, right. any of it. And so that adds on to everything mm -hmm. else. Yeah, it does. And and you you said, is it, do they go by numbers? Like, is it one fee is for how many versus? So we have sort of most of the group, genetic companies that we work with, they have sort of, if somebody has less than, I believe, two, it's a lesser cost mm -hmm. than if somebody has a greater amount. Mm -hmm. Some of the genetic companies We'll create a mechanism so that you can send them embryos and they will hold them and they will test them all at one time. Together, yeah, cost yeah. Yeah. So there's yeah. different ways to work with it. Um, I think I'm, we're lucky to be in, I'm lucky to be in a state that a mm -hmm. piece of it is often covered probably for at least 
60 plus percent of our patients. That's really good. Yeah. It's not exactly like that here in Texas. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every state is different yeah, and every, every different. even in the state is different, you know? Every, well, I think that's no also why it's so important to, to whatever facility, wherever you're at in the nation, whatever state, whatever fertility center you choose, you know, you have these conversations and, you know, they all have the resources available and the, and, and they all have an idea of what it would cost. And, Mine even had an idea based on my age, how much my meds were going to cost. And they were pretty on point for, you know, the most part. So um, the, you guys do a very good job of preparing patients for, for the cost. Um, I think it's because it is a lot of money and people don't want to be surprised. And, and, and it's already emotional as it is. So um, I know that all of these centers have wonderful in-house people that will talk to you about it and explain and I still, even if they explained it to me, my mind was so scrambled. I would still have questions about the cost and they were always available to answer yeah, my questions. So, yeah, I think yeah. that is the goal. No surprises. Somebody mm -hmm. should go into this eyes wide open about what the cost could be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we already talked about this and I get, there's another question I get. Can PGT be done with a fresh embryo transfer? Just, just briefly tell the difference between a fresh versus, versus a frozen embryo transfer. Yeah, absolutely. So when you do a retrieval, when the eggs are extracted, which is about a 10 minute procedure under anesthesia, um, same type of anesthesia, like when someone's having a colonoscopy, what we call twilight anesthesia. Um, if you have a transfer five days later, the same month you did the retrieval, we call that a fresh transfer versus if the embryo was frozen that we sort of touched upon before. And in a subsequent month and like your next month, then the embryo is transferred back. When PGT was first done in certain centers that had in-house testing, there was a goal to try to do a fresh transfer. The problem is that even in in-house testing, we were skewing the time of transfer by like an hour or two, and that was decreasing success. Yeah. So study after study has shown you that if you do PGT, even when you have the capacity to do in-house testing, the fresh transfers just don't work as well. So we want to separate. I always feel like the train has left the station. Mm -hmm. And if we're trying to do a transfer that same month, we're like running after the train. We want it to be perfectly synced. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a two-month process. Yeah. So the answer to that is no. Ideally, no. Yeah. Ideally, don't no. Wanna, don't yeah. want to push it. Yeah. And no, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. All this, Yes. All this work and effort, we want it to work the best it can the first time. Okay. All right. Next question. Can you ever transfer embryos that are found to be genetically abnormal? You know, I, and again, from my own experience, I had multiple abnormal embryos and some of the genetic defects they found I'd never even heard of. I mean, it was some were so obscure. Of course, I didn't transfer those based on my age, but there has been some uh, things in the in, on the media about potentially being able to transfer th uh, with certain genetic abnormalities that are found through PGT. What are your thoughts? Where am I? There it is. What are your thoughts on this question? So this is really um, a hot topic in our mm -hmm. world, in our field. Um, the majority of centers, mine included, do not transfer abnormal embryos. I just told you 10% of the time we overcall, we sort of accept that risk when we do it. And it's not because people have not. There are a couple centers across the country who do. Um, and there's been children that have born from embryos that were quote unquote abnormal. The problem is none of us know if an embryo is right. mosaic. And so that means partially abnormal or possibly abnormal versus truly abnormal. A live birth, a child that is born, does not mean a child that does not have illness throughout their life. And we just don't know enough the, to yeah, say that embryos are, that are, mo some are called out as mosaic, meaning that combination or truly abnormal, that we can rest comfortably that, that it won't cause an issue down the line. And so that's why the majority of fertility centers do not. That does not mean none of them do. 
There's a couple in California. There's one in New York who do. Yes, yeah, so I mean, I mean, I and I again, I don't know much about those centers, but I would imagine they would choose only certain genetically genetic abnormalities to, to transfer versus others. I'm not sure which ones those those would be, but so often yeah. it's in this realm of mosaic. So if mosaic, an embryo yeah. is called off as partly possibly abnormal, those that are truly abnormal, most centers will not. Yeah. Um, there's this concept that's called the compassionate transfer. It means a transfer is done in a time where it would never achieve pregnancy. The lining the embryo, the body's not prepared. Mm -hmm. But many women find it hard to separate from embryos. They do not mm -hmm. want them, quote yeah. unquote, discarded. And so that's something to consider. But to place an embryo for the hopes of it being a success, truly abnormal, no. Mosaic abnormal, meaning possibly or partially mm -hmm. or partly, a few centers do possibly. in certain cases. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Uh, again, we've talked a lot about testing. Um, not all women uh, require it or need it. Um, the, to get the PGT. So obviously the answer to that question, I even know, you can do IVF without testing embryos. Um, but, and we already talked about the women's that you do, you know, if you just want to go over it again, you know, uh, what would be the women that you as a physician, if they came to you, you would, you would recommend getting the PGT? So I strongly encourage again, if somebody um, has, if a mem member of a couple has an autosomal dominant disorder, we know that there's something you're trying to prevent to pass on, you're both carriers of something, no question. Um, if a woman is 38 or older, again, this is regardless if she's using sperm of a partner, a husband, a sperm donor, her age is gonna dictate the necessity yeah. to do embryo testing. 38 and older, I would strongly, strongly recommend it. Couples that have a history of recurrent loss, especially those that might have a genetic reason, I would strongly encourage you to do it. And do you, for those, you know, the couples that have recurrent loss, do you, um, I know we do, we recommend that the mom and the dad get a karyotype. That means that we test the chromosomes of the mom and the dad, because even though mom and dad are, gen appear genetically normal and have no issues, there are some instances where there is something a little off with the chromosomes. So it's important to know, to make sure in that situation that mom and dad both have normal uh, chromosomes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. Go ahead. It's a simple blood test because it's a mm -hmm. lot of information. Yeah, it's just a blood test. Uh, yeah, I do a lot of preconceptual counseling on women with recurrent pregnancy tests and or, you know, or pregnancy loss. And then uh, we also have the genetics department department who will recommend getting a karyotype on the on the mom and or uh, dad, depending on what the, the issue is. So, OK. All right. So this last part, we we talked about beforehand, the cell free fetal DNA and IVF with PGT. OK, so. We already talked a lot about PGT uh, and, and during the IVF process. Now, cell-free fetal DNA, what that means is what you guys might know as NIPT, the non-invasive pregnancy test. There's a gazillion different names for it. Basically, it's the blood test on mom that's done as early as 10 weeks, but can be done anywhere throughout the pregnancy. Um, you know, so if there's a couple who have embryos that did have PGT, the chromosomes were normal. Do they still need to have some kind of screening in the pregnancy? The answer is yes. As a maternal fetal medicine specialist, I take care for one who have been through IVF, and a lot of them have had PGT for whatever reason. And that does not negate the need for having antenatal screening. Antenatal screening takes many forms. Cell-free fetal DNA or the NIPT is just one form. Uh, we'll, we'll talk specifically about this cell-free fetal DNA because... It is a blood test. It is one of the tests that can be done early. Again, 10 weeks is the earliest it's recommended in a pregnancy that's well dated. We know for sure what gestational age the mom, uh, the pregnancy is. And basically it's taking 
blood from mom, that the blood sample is going to have cells uh, that actually came from the placenta. All cells throughout the body go through apoptosis where they just kind of implode and they release the DNA into the mom's uh, bloodstream. So the mom continuously has DNA from the pregnancy in her bloodstream, namely from the placenta. So we take that blood sample, we spin it down. Well, we, I don't do it. The lab spins it down, does their magic to get what, what's called a fetal fraction. Um, the best, you know, you want at least around 10 to 13% fetal fraction to get the best results um, from, uh, for the, uh, the cell-free fetal DNA test. Um, the ones that have a fetal fraction, uh, meaning the amount of fetal DNA that was obtained less than 4% have lower results or, you know, it's harder for them to get a result. Some of the things that can affect the outcome or whether or not you get a, a result would be uh, whether or not the test was done too early, the mom's body weight, a higher body weight does affect the ability to get a higher fetal fraction for the testing. And then lastly, if the baby does have a genetic or, or, or aneuploidy or chromosomal disorder, it may come back as unable or non-interpretable. So those are the main things that could cause a, 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 the cell-free fetal DNA test to come back where they don't have a result. If it does come back as a result, it'll be low risk or high risk. High risk meaning that um, there is a high risk for the baby of having a chromosomal defect. I want to reiterate, this is still this or some other form of antenatal screening, uh, whether it be a quad screen, nuchal translucency screen, there's all kinds of different screenings, should still be done in the pregnancy that was result of IVF, even with normal PGT, because things can happen. You know, again, as, as Dr. Hirschfeld uh, spoke on, this, the testing is take, taken at a certain time in pregnancy and the cells go on to divide and replicate and, and things can happen along the way. So you you still want to do that testing. Um, there was some information and I read about it up, uh, up on it. There's a few studies where it showed that the fetal fraction, as I mentioned before, is lower in IVF pregnancies, but that's not been uh, confirmed. There's another study that came back that said, no, that's not true. Um, but, you know, I, I if you are uh, pregnant or having go, going through IVF with PGT, just remember uh, that you should still get screening, whether it's the cell-free fetal DNA or quad screen or whatever uh, your doctor's office recommends, even though you had normal PGT. Um, that's still important. You could still get a lot of information from that screening. So that's a little blurb on the cell-free fetal DNA. Um, that is the end of our questions. We didn't have anybody come in with questions. They're probably going to send them afterwards. If you guys have questions afterwards, because this is going to be on, you could find this... Um, uh, talk on YouTube live channel here. You could also find it on Babies After 35, my Facebook page and Instagram page under my Instagram live part. I'll also share it with Dr. Hirschfeld so she can share it on her social media. Her Instagram is at Hirschfeld, So you'll be able to find it there. Go over there and follow her. Um, she's got a lot of good information too. Um, so that's all that I have. I think it was a wonderful talk. Um, and thank you for doing this. I'm doing this new format um, and yeah, it works really well. Yes. So I'm excited to see how it, uh, how uh, it'll get, go directly to my YouTube channel from here. That's so cool. um, next topic, we'll think on something. I'm sure I have plenty of things yeah. we can cover, but it's been a pleasure and enjoy the rest of your beautiful Chicago day. Yes, you too. Enjoy your beautiful Houston day. All right. We're going to end the broadcast. Okay. Bye guys. Bye. -bye. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Now listen to the next episode on Black Women and Infertility.